Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carroll. Though you may not realize that the ongoing threat of terrorism is affecting your life and that of your loved ones. Each week, Dr. Carroll analyzes the hottest topics in terror and helps you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Inside the mind of the German synagogue terrorist. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist, and your terrorist therapist. Well, I don't know if you have heard about this or not. I mean, most of the things that I talk about, or many of the things that I talk about on the Terrorist Therapist Show are things that have not gotten sufficient play in American mainstream media, um, leading, <laughs> contributing to the fact that people think that terrorism doesn't exist anymore, or except for in you know the Middle East or um, countries like India and Pakistan and and uh, things like that or the, or Africa. Um, but anyhow, this is a very significant incident, and if you haven't heard about it, you should. Uh, the terrorist is a man named Stefan Belit. And the attack occurred in a German town in the center of Germany uh, called Halle. Now, the reason why this is particularly significant um, is that it occurred uh, on the Jewish high holiday of Yom Kippur. So if you were a, an anti-Semitic terrorist, you would pick, there is no better day to pick to try to kill Jews than on their holiest day of Yom Kippur. Um, I'm going to talk to you first about some of the some of the particulars about the attack, uh, which is kind of interesting in itself. Um, a lot of intriguing parts. He was somewhat somewhat disorganized, um, and and then uh, in the last segment, I'm going to get take you inside his mind. So after you have seen and heard what he has done, then I will take you more inside his mind um, so that you can appreciate, you know, what someone with this kind of mindset is capable of doing. First of all, uh, just to give you a little upfront information, this, um, as I said, he, he, his name is Stefan Bellit. And um, in the, I'll give you sort of the, the uh, end of the story in a way first, in it, which is that he ended up killing, shooting and killing two people, but they weren't Jews and they weren't inside the synagogue. So um, first let's talk a little bit about this little town, a small town, uh, as I said, in the middle of Germany and a small synagogue. Um, where this event occurred, this attack occurred. Um, he, the, the Jewish population in this town before World War II, before the Holocaust, was about 1,300. But by 1944, only around 90 Jewish people remained. And today, most of the Jewish community in Halle came to Germany from the collapsing Soviet Union as part of a refugee program. So when this attack occurred, there were approximately 50 to 80 worshipers in the synagogue. Um, 
most of them were older Russian-speaking Jews. There were 10 young Americans, a few Germans, a Pole, an Austrian, and a Brit. And they were all praying. Uh, this attack occurred, started to occur at around noon Germany time. And of course, uh, on the holiday of, of uh, Yom Kippur, um, you fast. So this is a day when um, observant Jewish people stay in synagogue all day. Uh, so, and this was a, a, an orthodox um, or very religious synagogue, which has the ritual of the men being in the front of the sanctuary and the women in the back. And all of a sudden, during the reading of the Torah, there was, which is the scripture, the old scripture, handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, there was, well, actually it was the Ten Commandments handed down to Moses, but it is an old scripture with the stories and laws of, of the Jewish people. And during this Torah reading, um, there was all of a sudden a loud boom, and it sounded to people like a big metal object fell over. Now, before uh, the services began, the synagogue had requested from Germany, from the German authorities, that they would provide police during the holiday. But the German government turned down their request. Instead, um, they sort of had to cobble together a security system, <laughs> which consisted of a member of the community who wore a jacket that said security, and they put him at a small desk near the entrance to the sanctuary, and he was uh, designated as the security guard. And then, um, then they had strong doors um, in the front of the synagogue, which is what ultimately kept this terrorist out. So when they heard this loud boom, the cantor uh, paused the service, and people started looking at a security camera monitor. In other words, they had security cameras, you know, facing around the temple, and um, they had uh, a television set that re that uh, showed what was what, what the security cameras were recording. So, uh, I mean, imagine this. Imagine being inside your place of worship. You hear a loud boom. Um, it sounds a little scary. And then you look at the television set that is showing you what's happening outside. And you see a man dressed in black on the sidewalk outside the wooden door, which had been locked during the services as this security measure. The man was surrounded by smoke. And then less than a minute later, there was another boom and then a sound that was more clearly gunfire. Now, uh, of course, this turned out to be Stefan Balit, and um, he was um, from this small town about 25 miles from the synagogue, about 45 minutes away, and they saw the weapons that he had, and they were weapons that he made himself from wood piping, steel, and plastic, and um, and, and he had made, you're gonna, I'm gonna tell you more about this. Um, he, he not only left a manifesto online a week before this attack, 
specifying what synagogue he was going to attack, why he was going to attack it. I mean, it is sort of mind-blowing that there was no one who saw this online post who could have and should have, obviously, warned the authorities. Um, but he posted this whole manifesto. It was 10 pages. It was written in English. And the point of it was, why it was in English when he, that was not his native language, was to have uh, more people be able to read it so that he could inspire more people to perpetrate terrorist attacks, notably on synagogues. Um, he, in this online post, uh, he also pic showed pictures, uh, photos, of the weapons that he had made and which are clearly modeled after things that he found on the internet. Now, um, during this attack, these weapons, some of the weapons malfunctioned and he tried, he didn't count apparently on the fact that the door to the synagogue was gonna be locked, which presumably most often it wouldn't be, um, but you know, on, on a day that is, uh, a target, um, a high holiday, a high holy day, uh, that's a target for terrorists, they were certainly going to lock it. Uh, they may well have been locking it even before because there is uh, a rise in anti-Semitism in Germany. This is not the first incidence. Uh, so anyhow, um, Stefan <laughs> tried to push open the door to the synagogue and he, that didn't work and he then tried to shoot it open, and that didn't work. And um, he, not only did he post a manifesto online a week before the attack, but he also tried to live stream and did uh, manage to live stream for about 35 minutes, the attack itself. So when we come back, I will tell you more about um, this attack and what he did, what Stefan Belit did after he wasn't able to enter the synagogue. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show where I'm talking today and taking you inside the mind of the German synagogue terrorist. I'm telling you first about the incident itself and then um, I will get into his mind. <laughs> um, so there we have the terrorist uh, outside the synagogue, not quite, you know, he, he spent a lot of time making his weapons and planning the attack as can be seen and was seen by his manifesto that he put online, 10 pages showing his clear planning for the attack. But the one thing he didn't plan on was how if the door was locked, first of all, if it, if it was locked, and second of all, if it was locked, um, what he was gonna do to get in if there were some other, some plan B. So he didn't have a plan B, he couldn't get in, and um, instead he was so angry and frustrated, of course, that um, he pretty much started uh, shooting willy-nilly, uh, randomly. And I was telling you, um, before about how um, he had live streamed it. Not only did he leave a manifesto, but he also live streamed it. And you can see how, you know, the terrorists are picking up these things from each other. There have become more, that's become sort of the, the um, way to do a terror attack. You leave a manifesto beforehand and then you live stream it 
during the attack itself. And, and again, the point of this is to inspire other people to perpetrate terror attacks. So now after he's standing outside the synagogue door and um, he, a woman is passing in the street and she shouts at him and they, and they see this nine minutes into his live stream video um, that this woman passes and she shouts at him and he turns and guns her down. Um, he still can't get into the synagogue. He's swearing, he's frustrated. He gets in his car and he drives down to the end of the street of the street and he enters a Turkish kebab shop where um, he kills another person. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a bit. But needless to say, you would not find or it would be very unlikely to find a Jewish person and his whole uh, rage, his whole attack was perpetrated towards the target uh, was Jews and on their holiest day. Um, so since, as I mentioned, the religious people fast on Yom Kippur, they, he would be unlikely to find them in a kebab shop, not to mention it was a kebab shop. <laughs> but anyhow, um, so, um, you know, the, the, after this happened, of course, after the attack, um, the German government has been, you know, trying to say that they're going to do more to protect Jewish people and, um, you know, yes, this is terrible that it happened here and so on. But um, at, into people who were in the synagogue were later interviewed and they said that after the attack, well, first of all, after the attack, the police, of course, uh, eventually surrounded the synagogue and neighboring areas and... Um, tried to make sure that uh, that there were no explosives or that there were no other terrorists lurking and so on. And when they felt it was safe, they had the people inside the synagogue come out and they went into a bus that had on the, on the front of it evacuation. And, but um, after they were evacuated, um, the people who had been in the synagogue were not provided with any um, police protection. So, so much for these promises of, um, and it was still Yom Kippur, it was still the, the Jewish holiday. So Jews were particularly um, vulnerable on that day. And especially after there had just been this attack. And of course, there's always the chance of copycats. So um, now during the attack, of course, there was much confusion and many people, you know, fled away from where the gunfire was, and some of them went upstairs to an apartment or into a small kitchen, and then, uh, and they called the police. And um, after they made contact with the police and they heard the sirens outside, they still didn't know they were, you know, they didn't go out of the synagogue until they were eventually um, told to by the police, you know, told that it was safe, but people really didn't know what was happening outside, you know, what more was going to happen. But while they were on lockdown inside, um, they decided to continue the service. And they continued singing and dancing and praying and um, wouldn't let this um, incident stop them. And certainly also, um, I am sure they were praying for their lives. Um, now, I went to synagogue on the high holidays on um, Rosh Hashanah the week before and then Yom Kippur. And at my synagogue in California, 
um, there was, as there has been for many years, but I think each year there is an increase in security, but um, there was a police car parked right outside, right at the entrance to where you would come into the parking lot and then to the temple. Um, you know, there's like a, there was, there's always been, for as long as I can remember, a police car, um, well, at least since 9-11, a police car sitting in the driveway making its presence very obvious to anyone who would enter. But, you know, thinking about it, remembering what that was like, what, you know, that day was like in the synagogue and thinking about what happened in Germany, um, you know, it is, one could only imagine how horrified the people were looking at the camera, looking at watching the television and seeing this man outside and again, not knowing how many more there were or what other weapons he had, um, you know, being scared that they were gonna die. Um, so um, just to, to continue with the description of what happened that day, um, well, First of all, uh, he had, I, I mentioned his, his uh, live streaming video, and, um, but before the attack, he was someone who spent his days, hours and all his time, essentially. He was 27 years old, I don't think I mentioned that. And he spent his time online, and particularly using Twitch, which is a live streaming service, service popular with video gamers. And that's where he shared his video footage. Um, now, what, getting back to the specific attack, um, first of all, some of the people, as I said, some of the people went to, um, you know, went further back, tried to hide from the gunfire in the synagogue, uh, find shelter. And then some of the people tr barricaded the door to the prayer room. So there was a door on the outside of the synagogue and then a door to the, to the prayer room itself. And um, they then, after they barricaded it, they then prepared themselves to fight back. And um, they, you know, this Balit shot at the wooden doors of the synagogue, uh, hoping that they would give way, believing they would give way so that he could come inside and murder everybody. And um, and then after, so once he realized he wasn't going to get in, not only did he shoot the woman and go to the the um, kebab shop, but he also threw a threw a grenade into a nearby Jewish cemetery. Um, let's see. So yes, so so he killed the woman in the street. And then he went around the corner, as I was saying, to the kebab shop. And first he threw an explosive at the um, entrance of the shop, and then he fired shots into the kebab shop. And that's how he managed to shoot and kill a man who was in there. Now, um, before he left the synagogue, though, he, when he couldn't get in himself, he did put some explosives um, at that front door, and he tried to light them, and none of this worked, fortunately. So he was, uh, <laughs> he, for all his planning, uh, he wasn't doing a great job. Um, 
there were this this happened as i said at 12 noon and he was eventually he then oh he then ran after shooting those two people and killing them he then um wrote drove to another town in germany named wiedersdorf wiedersdorf and he um shot and injured two people there one was an electrician in a workshop and one was um so far unidentified um you know, in the media, in any case, um, but but these were random. And then he 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 stole a taxi and he went on the um, on the uh, autobahn. And the police started pursuing him. And it took hours for them to eventually catch him and uh, arrest him, of course, and put him in jail. Now, you know, um, there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of fortune here. Um, this obviously could have been a much more, it would have been a massacre. Had he been able to get into the synagogue, it would have been a massacre. But let me stop here. When we come back, I am going to take you into the mind of this madman, who, uh, <laughs> mad in um, both senses of the word, um, and, and draw some parallels to um, the kinds of people who are... Um, potentially capable of these kinds of crimes. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show where I'm telling you this, well, tragedy that could have been even a lot more tragic, um, but uh, the story of Stefan Balit, who um, was a terrorist who attempted a massacre on a Jewish synagogue in the middle of Germany on the holiest day of the Jewish year. Uh, not that any day, you know, massacre, trying to massacre people in a synagogue would be a good day. Um, but I hope that you're, you know, whatever religion you are, I hope that you're, as you listen to this today, that you're um, realizing that, you know, terrorists, it isn't just about the Jews. I mean, yes, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. In fact, it is growing and um, it is particularly growing in Germany, but, you know, we know that, um, radical Islamists or Iran or, you know, there is, um, Israel is a target, Jews are a target in addition to the West in, in, a, in a generic kind of sense. So, um, so whatever religion you practice, imagine this story taking place in your house of worship. And mainly, I, I just uh, imagine, you know, looking at that television set and feeling so, that your life was in danger particularly since he not only had guns, but he had um, explosives. Um, now, I promised I would go behind into the mind of uh, Stefan and um, tell you what kind of a person did all of this. Okay, so um, he was a loner. He lived with his mom, his mother. He spent hours online, as I mentioned. Uh, he blamed others for his problems, according to his father. Now, um, his father um, told the media that his son was an angry young man who was not at peace with himself or with the world and always blamed everyone else for his problems and spent all his time online. Now, I know that, um, that you know, in Europe, having lived in Europe, for many years, um, I know that 
there isn't as much of a tendency for people to go to psychiatrists or psychologists, for that matter, any country in the world other than the US, there isn't as much of it, it isn't as natural, not even here, it's not, um, there still needs to be stigma, it still needs to be destigmatized, but there is more of a likelihood of an automatic or natural reaction to send a child um, who is the way that his father described to a therapist. It would be like you would think of that. Again, you know, obviously we have this problem here too. Look at all the school shooters. You know, where were their parents? Why didn't they send them to a psychiatrist? Okay, but still, <clears throat> uh, the father should have done something, even if it was to alert the police. And in fact, um, <clears throat> this terrorist was not on uh, any watch list. He hadn't really come to the attention of the police. He was not a known extremist. But now that this happened, um, he appears to have, you know, when they looked into him, they, they have started to investigate him. And he seems to have become self-radicalized while living alone with his mother, you know, again, on the internet, living alone with his mother in a, a village called Heldebra which is around 25 miles, as I said, from Hala, which is where the synagogue was attacked. Um, he was born in a different town, a different village named Eisleben, and that is uh, close to Heldebra. And, um, and when he was born, and until he was 14 years old, he lived with both of his parents, but then they divorced when he was 14. Now, as I'm telling you some of these things, I hope that um, if you've listened to some of my analyses of some other uh, people, terrorists who, uh, you know, who have of major attacks or who, whose past stories have become known to us, and, and not just, um, and even like school shooters, even mass shooters of various types, there are typical uh, backgrounds. And one of the typical backgrounds, you know, is of course someone who is lonely, a loner, um, comes from a broken family, doesn't have much time in particular with their father, um, wasn't taught to, to be a man in a proper way because of not having enough uh, attention or, or uh, exposure to time with their father. Um, and, and being growing up to be a very angry man or young man, boy and young man, um, as his father described this man, Stefan. Um, more, more about him. Um, he, he did see his father sometimes. <laughs> Uh, his father lived in a village called Bendor, which was about five minutes, a five minute drive away from his mother, where he lived with his mother. And um, it's not clear how much routinely is, once a month, once a week, once a year. <laughs> um, but anyhow, but his father did say that he last saw his son around 24 hours before the attack. He said his son was confrontational and he said, quote, there was always a fight. My opinion did not count. I couldn't reach him anymore. 
Well, clearly this sounds like a, a, a man who at 14, when his parents divorced, was angry at his father, blamed his father for the divorce or blamed his father for not wanting him to live with him or blamed his father for not seeing him more often. There was something there that um, began this, this um, anger, this split and this anger. Um, one of the things that's really sad and interesting is that when he was asked um, about his final conversation with his son, and uh, he didn't tell very much, very many details, but when he was asked if he thought about his son after he heard about an attack on a synagogue, the father stayed silent and began weeping. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you that, yes, indeed, um, he did think of his son as soon as he heard this report. And he felt sad, he felt guilty, perhaps. Um, sad for himself, sad for his son, sad for hopefully sad for the victims. Um, <clears throat> this um, Stefan, uh, after you know he was 14, his parents divorced, he went to live with his mother, and, uh, or he stayed living with his mother. And he did, um, he was graduated from high school and he went on to study chemistry for two semesters at a higher education institution. But then he had some kind of problem with his stomach and he had a serious stomach operation and he had to abandon his studies after that. I guess because he was too ill or he couldn't, or he, it's not clear why he had to abandon his studies um, because, because it seems like he did do some work after he left school because a neighbor said that she thought or he thought that he was working as a broadcasting technician at the time of the attack. Now, presumably, you know, that may take less, uh, less, maybe less stressful or is part-time or something than if he continued studying chemistry. Um, now, you know, there, there was a, um, there was a man who, um, the owner of the kebab shop, uh, Rifat Tekin, meanwhile, said that the gunman, he described, he described Stefan as calm like a professional. Maybe he has done this many times, like me making a kebab. He's doing this like a professional. So what does that say to you? It says to me that he has watched a ton of shooting on video, video games. Um, and that is where he became a professional. I mean, yes, perhaps he went to some kind of additional training, but that has not come out. In any case, you know, we know that he learned how to make the weapons by the internet, so it is quite likely that he learned how to be a professional shooter by the internet, although, although he didn't exactly do a great job getting into the synagogue. But still, I mean, that was because of the door and, and so on. Um, now, um, uh, let's see. And, and so this, this video showed that he was familiar with this. Now, um, getting back to the online streaming video, 
that Stefan made of his rampage. It lasted about 35 minutes on and he put it on Twitch and Twitch is owned by Amazon. It's a gaming site. And it was up for 30 minutes after the rampage. So that was 35 plus 30 potentially. And it was seen by at least 2,200 people while it was still up on Twitch. They didn't take it off, you know, until 30 minutes after. And then of course, the 2,200 people undoubtedly distributed it to their social media. Um, he was going back to what he looked like when they saw him on the television set um, outside the synagogue. He was wearing tactical gear and a helmet with a camera strapped to it. And he had climbed out of a car. I mean, you, you got to see this on the video. He got out of the car firing shots into the street. Um, you know, some of the, sh some of the video, uh, not necessarily his, but some of the video that was taken by other people who could see him, like it seemed like um, some of it was taken by someone in a higher, like in an apartment building or something that was higher up looking down on him. And you see him with a car and he's sort of shooting randomly in the street. Um, before the attack in his, in his um, manifesto, oh, and on the video as well, um, he, he sh shot himself, he, he videotaped himself, um, making a diatribe against women and Jews and migrants before the attack. And he chose to take this, to commit the massacre, at least on this day, against Jews. Now, the, the victims, the victims, the woman and the man who were um, shot down after he couldn't get into the synagogue. The woman was named, they haven't given out, at least that I could find, they haven't given out uh, the last names, but the woman was named Jana, and um, she was 40 years old, and um, they showed photos of her um, at concerts, um, putting her arms around the German folk singers whom she reportedly adored. And then the man, Kevin, at the kebab shop was 20 years old and his photos showed him in a dark jacket with dark sunglasses and earbuds looking coolly aloof. He's described as looking coolly aloof at the camera. So, you know, ironically, um, they weren't part of the demographics that the terrorists said that he hated, but he killed them anyway. And um, that, that kind of is um, a perfect comment on um, terrorism, regardless of who a particular attack is aimed at, that in the end, it is empty and shallow and serves no real purpose except tragedy. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your Terrorist Therapist. If you would like to find out more about terrorism from me, your Terrorist Therapist, visit my website, terroristtherapist.com. And if you're a parent or teacher and want to build stronger nests for your kids to become more resilient, check out my new award-winning book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. It's the first and only book about terrorism for kids. 
You can find it wherever books are sold or directly from the publisher at terrorismforkids.com. Terrorism, the number four, kids.com. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. Thank you for listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carol. We hope listening to the show has made you feel calmer, more resilient, and more able to reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. You can also check out past shows on Renegade Talk Archives for more insights.